Okay, everyone, I think we'll get started. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs. Thank you all for coming tonight. I'm afraid that um, the threat of bad weather has kept some folks away, but um, we will enjoy nevertheless. Um, we're really delighted this evening to welcome Lynn Olson to the Pratt to talk about her book, Citizens of London. This was one of my favorite books of 2010, and I've been really looking forward to meeting Lynn and hearing her talk about this incredible book. In Citizens of London, Lynn Olson tells the behind-the-scenes story of the U.S. alliance with Britain uh, during the World War II, told from the perspective of three key players, Edward R. Murrow, Avril Harriman, and a man whose name is unfamiliar to most people, um, John Gilbert Wynant, the, the U.S. ambassador to Britain. All three formed close relationships um, with Winston Churchill and the Churchill family. Citizens of London is, however, more than just the story of these Americans. It's about the power of personal diplomacy and a tale of two cities, Washington, D.C. and London. Lynn Olson is a former Moscow correspondent for the Associated Press and White House correspondent for the Baltimore Sun. She's the author of, among other books, The Trouble Troublesome Young Men and Freedom's Daughters. Welcome to the Pratt Library. Thank you, Judy. I, I, I did work for The Sun, but um, it, was, it was a very weird situation. I worked only in the Washington Bureau. So my knowledge of Baltimore is minuscule, and I'm always very embarrassed when people come up to me and ask me about uh, things that you should know about Baltimore if you worked for the Baltimore Sun for four years, five years, as I did. I've never been here, so I'm delighted to be here and uh, tonight, and I thank you very much for having me. By the way, I must say, um, I don't know how you all feel about the Sun now, but it was a wonderful paper when I worked for it, which was many, many years ago, and uh, it, was, it was really one of the, the best periods of my life working for that newspaper and uh, when it was still a really good newspaper. In September of 1943, um, in the, right in the middle of World War II, uh, Winston Churchill made this remark. If we are together, nothing is impossible. If we are divided, all will fail. Now what he was referring to, of course, was the wartime partnership between the United States and Great Britain. That alliance has come to be known as the special relationship that helped win the war, preserve democracy, and save the world. As the years have passed, its creation has seemed almost preordained. First, Churchill rousing his country in 1940 to stand alone against Hitler, and then Franklin Roosevelt and the Americans coming to the rescue of Churchill and the British in the nick of time. In fact, it was far from certain until Pearl Harbor that that alliance was actually going to happen. And once it did, it was a fragile and tension-filled partnership from the moment of its birth. Creating it and then keeping it alive was not an easy task, to put it mildly. In Citizens of London, as Judy said, I take a behind-the-scenes look at that alliance uh, from the outlook of the three Americans that she mentioned. Who all three of whom played vital roles in creating it and then helping to keep it going. Two of the three 
our very well-known Edward R. Murrow, the legendary CBS correspondent who became a household name in the United States when he reported from the rooftops of London during the Blitz in the Battle of Britain. And Averill Harriman, the ambitious, hard-driving, multimillionaire businessman who was sent to London in March 1941 to oversee Lend-Lease Aid for Britain. And then there's the third man, uh, who has been almost totally forgotten in this country, but in many ways was the most significant of the three. His name is John Gilbert Winant, and he was the U.S. ambassador to Britain, replacing the appeasement-minded Joseph Kennedy. Not exactly a hard act to follow. He was a former governor of New Hampshire, a liberal, and a Republican. He was also a committed supporter of Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal. In fact, he sacrificed his political career in 1936 because of that support for Roosevelt and his social reforms. Um, just parenthetically, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to give Winant the public attention I think he deserves and the credit that's due him. Now, all three of these men were key participants in the debate in America in 1940 and 1941 over whether Britain should, in fact, be saved. Many people don't realize this now, but um, it was not an academic discussion. Throughout that time, and we're talking really now mostly about early 1941, the British were holding on only by the skin of their teeth. They were, in fact, very close to being defeated by Germany. They had won the Battle of Britain, um, but German submarines at that point were strangling British supply lines, and starvation for Britain's citizens loomed as a distinct possibility. German bombers had already killed tens of thousands of British civilians in their raids on London and other British cities. The British armed forces lacked adequate ammunition and arms and were on the defensive everywhere. The only hope for the British was American aid, but that aid was very, very skimpy and continued to be so until well after Pearl Harbor. One reason for that was that American industry was strenuously resisting the whole idea of converting to wartime production. Remember, the U.S. was not at war yet, and the economy was finally bouncing back after the Depression. And companies were intent, not surprisingly, on making as much in profits as they could, as long as they could. There was also still a lot of isolationism in this country at that point, and a fair amount of anti-British feeling. Many in Washington had already written Britain off. The president was clearly not one of those naysayers. He very much wanted to save England, but he was also very cautious. He did not want to go to war if he could do anything at all to prevent that from happening. I should also point out that at this point, Roosevelt and Churchill were highly skeptical, even suspicious of each other. The famous friendship that developed between them later in the war was nowhere on the horizon at that point. It's common wisdom that the success of the Anglo-American alliance was in large part due to the close collaboration of those two. And of course, it was vitally important, no question about that. But equally important, in my view, was the work of many others, including Winant, Harriman, and Murrow, in laying the groundwork for the partnership and then keeping it alive once it was born. 
Throughout 1940 and 1941, Murrow championed the British cause in his broadcast to the American people. Harriman and Wynant, meanwhile, who were sent to London as Roosevelt's eyes and ears, made clear to the president and his administration that they thought Britain would hold out and that America must do all it could to help the British and Churchill. If we failed to do that, they said, Britain would fall and the U.S. would be left to face Germany alone. Churchill knew how important these three men were to his country's survival, and he pursued them as relentlessly as he would later pursue Roosevelt. He had an open-door policy where Murrow was concerned, and he would often invite him in for drinks at 10 Downing Street. Um, the reason that they knew each, one of the reasons they knew each other so well is that their wives had become close friends working on a, in a group called Bundles for Britain. It was an American women's organization that would send uh, clothing and other items to, for Britons who had been bombed out of their homes. And so um, Janet um, Murrow would often have lunch with Clementine Churchill. And uh, Ed Murrow would come to pick his wife up, Janet up. And inevitably, Churchill would come out of his study and, and, and also inevitably say, Mr. Murrow, do you have time for several whiskeys? Um, and Murrow always did, uh, of course. Churchill was even closer to Wynant and Harriman. He made both of them part of his inner circle, giving them unprecedented access not only to himself, to, but to members of his government as well. He also pulled them into his personal family life, as, as Judy mentioned. It was, I mean, it was a really fascinating uh, situation. In fact, they were really de facto members of Churchill's family. They spent most, many if not most, weekends with the Churchills uh, at the Prime Minister's official country house, Checkers, and also at another um, estate, country estate called Ditchley that Churchill frequently visited during the war. In fact, these America's ties with the Churchills were so strong that all three of them ended up having wartime love affairs with members of Churchill's family. Harriman and Murrow both were involved with Pamela Churchill, uh, the Prime Minister's daughter-in-law, although I should hasten to add that not at the same time. It was sequential. Um, and Wynant fell in love with Churchill's middle daughter and his favorite daughter, Sarah. The whereabouts of these three men on the night of Pearl Harbor gives you some idea of their importance to both countries. Wynant and Harriman were both with Churchill at Checkers that night, while Murrow was at the White House with Roosevelt. As soon as they heard the news, all three of them knew the long fight was over. America was now in the war. But another struggle began almost immediately, the struggle to keep this new infant alliance alive. It was most definitely not an easy thing to do. There were a lot of strains, a lot of tension, a lot of rivalry and prejudices between the two countries, from the top civilian and military officials down to ordinary citizens. And I'm including Roosevelt and Churchill in that, that group. The U.S. and Britain may have shared a common language and heritage, a common love of freedom, but there was a tremendous amount of ignorance and, and misunderstanding about each other's history and military and political situations. The British had a bad habit of condescending to the Americans, treating them like misbehaving colonists rather than independent allies. The Americans, not surprisingly, were very resentful of that, thinking that the British had not exactly distinguished themselves on the battlefield up to that point, 
And who were they to tell us how to run the war, especially when we were coming to rescue them? And here again, Wynant, Harriman, and Murrow stepped in. The ambassador and Lend-Lease representative continued to play important roles as mediators between Churchill and Roosevelt, as well as smoothing the way between the two countries' other top military and government figures. At the same time, Wynant and Murrow devoted much of their energies to explaining each nation to the other's citizens. Murrow did so through his broadcasts, CBS broadcasts, while Wynant spent a great deal of time educating the British about the United States and its people, and then educating American troops coming to Britain in 1942, 1943, and 1944 about their hosts. After the war, the Times of London would call Wynant the adhesive, the glue, that helped to hold the wartime alliance together. From the day he arrived in Britain in March 1941, which was the worst time of the war for the British, he made it very clear that unlike Joseph Kennedy, he was there to stay. The first words he spoke after stepping off his plane were, there's no place I'd rather be at this time than in England, and he meant it. During the heaviest raids of the Blitz, he would walk the streets of London while the bombs were still falling and ask everyone he met what he could do to help. The British people loved him. Um, when I was doing my research, I came across the statement over and over again that most of England knew who he was. And I didn't believe it. I mean, can you name the, can you name the British ambassador to the US now? I mean, most people don't you know, know names of ambassadors. But the more I talked to people and the more I did research in primary um, archives, I came to believe that that was actually true. It wasn't just that his face was uh, in the newspapers, which, which it was, and, and in the newsreels, reels, the British newsreels. But what he did was pass word of mouth throughout England, certainly in London. And it, I think it was really true that virtually every Briton knew who John Gilbert Wynant was. For many of them, his warmth and compassion, his determination to stand with them and share their dangers, was the first tangible sign that Americans did indeed care about what happened to them and their country. He showed them the best side of America. I quote an American GI from New York in, in the book who said that virtually every British civilian he met during the war told him how much they admired Wynant and how, in his words, this caring and courageous envoy had strengthened their will and determination to fight Hitler. John Gilbert Wynant had a very sad end. Um, at the end of the war, he was very depressed, very lonely. He was, he was a depressive anyway, but, uh, and he was also a workaholic, and he had worked pretty much 24 hours a day, or close to it, throughout the entire war. His affair with Sarah Churchill had ended badly. His whole life had been bound up with Roosevelt. And when, when Roosevelt died, there was nothing left for him. Remember, he was a Republican. And, he, and as I said, he had sacrificed his political career um, for Roosevelt. And once, so once FDR was gone, there was really nothing left. The Truman administration didn't really want anything to do with him. He was an idealist. Uh, and by that time, the Cold War had begun. And uh, the people around Truman were very tough-minded, and uh, they didn't want someone like 
Gilwinet around. Less than two years after the war, he killed himself. The shock and grief in, in Britain over his death was extraordinary. The Manchester Guardian wrote, It is a terrible thing to consider about our post-war world that John Gilbert Wynant could no longer bear to live in it. So these are the three main characters in the book. But I should mention that I also write about a number of other Americans who played significant roles in keeping uh, the alliance together and making it thrive. General Dwight D. Eisenhower, for example, who came to London in 1942, determined to do everything in his power to make the partnership a success. Gentlemen, he told his staff shortly after arriving, we have one chance and only one of winning this war, and that is in complete and unqualified partnership with the British. I shall govern myself accordingly and expect you to do likewise. He retained that determination throughout the war, even when many of his own American generals uh, made fun of him and accused him of favoring the British over his countrymen. And among those generals were two of his closest friends, General Mark Clark and General George Patton, uh, both of whom were extremely anti-British, uh, particularly Patton, who once wrote in his diary uh, comparing uh, Eisenhower to Benedict Arnold because of his determination to treat the British equally. There's someone else I, I focus on in the book that I'd like to mention. His name is Tommy Hitchcock, and in the 1920s and 1930s, he was a huge celebrity in the United States and Europe. F. Scott Fitzgerald modeled characters in his two best-known novels, The Great Gatsby and Tender is the Night, on Hitchcock, who was arguably the best and certainly the most famous polo player in the world. He was single-handedly responsible for turning polo into a popular spectator sport in America during that time. During the war, Gil Winant, who was a close friend of his, and had actually taught him, Gil Winant started his career as a teacher um, at St. Paul's School in Concord, the prep school in, in Concord, New Hampshire, um, and apparently was an inspirational teacher. Um, Tommy Hitchcock was one of his students, so he had known him since, since he was a kid. In any event, Gil Winant brought him to the, the embassy the, in London as assistant military attache. I write about Hitchcock because he insisted that the U.S. Air Force must cooperate with the RAF, the Royal Air Force, rather than compete against it, which was a far different attitude than that held by most of the U.S. Air Force brass. Specifically, Hitchcock led a crusade for the adoption of the P-51 Mustang, the long-range fighter plane that helped win the war by destroying German fighters and protecting Allied bombers in the bombing campaign against Germany. The Mustang was built by an American company, but it was produced for the British. And in the eyes of the powers that be in Washington, that fact alone made it inferior. Nonetheless, Hitchcock helped ram it through, and just in the nick of time, truly in the nick of time, in early 1944, it appeared on the scene and cleared the skies of German planes just prior to D-Day. Now I'd like to talk briefly about one final character, which is the city of London itself. I've wanted to write a book about wartime London ever since uh, my husband Stan Cloud and I wrote a book together called The Murrow Boys. Uh, it was our first book about Edward R. Murrow and the correspondence he hired to create CBS News. Much of the action in the early part of that book takes place in London. 
And while we were doing research for it, I was struck by what a spectacular city it was during that time. And I think I've written altogether now four books that deal with London in the early part of the war. And part of the reason, I think, is because I just want to return to the city. I just thought it was so wonderful. It was probably the most vibrant city in the whole world during the war. It was the nerve center of Allied planning for the war in Europe, and thousands of people from all over had flocked there. Americans, Canadians, Poles, French, Czechs, Belgians, Norwegians, Australians, South Africans, the list goes on and on. It was definitely the place to be in the early 1940s. This is what one historian wrote about London. Blacked out, bombed out, expensive and hard to get around in, it was still magnificent, the Paris of World War II. One way in which it resembled Paris was that for many people it was a very romantic, sexually charged city. There was a distinct carpe diem mentality, live for today, for tomorrow we may die. Most did not, did not die, but they certainly lived for the day. The English novelist Elizabeth Bowen wrote this about wartime London. There was a diffused gallantry in the air, an unmarriedness. It came to be rumored about the country that everyone in London was in love. But there was another London, a city that never gave up, a city whose people had survived night after night of vicious German bombing uh, in 1940 and 1941, as well as severe shortages and rationing of just about everything you can imagine, rationing that continued not only until the end of the war, but several years after the war, in fact, until 1954, with courage, resilience, fortitude, and yes, even humor. Ed Murrow loved telling his friends the story of what one Londoner said to him at the height of the Blitz. Do you think we're really brave or just lacking in imagination? The answer was simple for Murrow and everybody else. They were really brave. Another CBS reporter, Eric Severide, who was one of the Murrow boys, um, was in full agreement with that view. He had arrived in London in the spring of 1940 with a chip on his shoulder, a very big chip. Like many Americans, he had a deep streak of anglophobia, disliking, among other things, the way that certain Britons made him feel uncomfortable and inadequate by what he perceived as their condescending, patronizing manner. He had been based in Paris before its fall in uh, June 1940 and had witnessed the collapse of the vaunted French army. And he doubted the ability of the smug, insular British, as he viewed them, to stand up to Hitler. By October, just a few months later, at the height of the Blitz, his doubts and antagonisms had vanished. Once a self-described American stranger in London, he now felt himself to be part of that embattled community. Britain and its capital, he wrote years later, showed the world a face it had not seen before in this war. During those bright days and livid nights of 1940, the spirit of the British called up from despair the spirit of other men. Americans thought they were saving Britain, and they were but the spirit and example of Britain also were saving America. In mid-October 1940, uh, Severide was transferred back to Washington by CBS. Um, he had wanted to stay, but he, his nerves had 
were really shot, uh, particularly by the Blitz. He, he couldn't stand the bombing. And so he was sent to Washington. And in his last broadcast before leaving, he compared his departure from London to his flight from Paris, just days before its fall to the Germans. Paris, he said, died like a beautiful woman, in a coma, without struggle, without even knowing or asking why. One left Paris with a feeling almost of relief. London, one leaves with regret. Of all the great cities of Europe, London alone behaves with pride and battered but stubborn dignity. Throughout this last broadcast, uh, Severide fought to keep his, his voice steady, and at the end he lost his struggle. His voice choked with emotion. He concluded, Someone wrote the other day, when this is all over, in years to come, men will speak of this war and say, I was a soldier, I was a sailor, or I was a pilot. Others will say with equal pride, I was a citizen of London. Thank you. I'd be very happy to take any questions or hear any comments that you all have. Yes. How, how old was he? He was 58 years old. He was pretty young still. Oh, that is a wonderful question. Actually, I had a contract to do a book on, um, on the governments in exile. It, it, actually, it was a book on the... Um, I mean, when, when you think of the Allied Partnership, most people, you think of Britain... Uh, the United States and the Soviet Union. Those are the, obviously the big three. Um, but most people don't realize that there were, you do, uh, that there were a number of other European governments in exile in, in Britain. I mean, these are governments who had left their countries. Uh, what they did not capitulate. They, they left their countries uh, to fight on. And so it wasn't just the governments. Uh, it was their armed forces as well. So you had the Norwegian government. Um, I'm going to go really blank. The Polish government was the Polish government and armed forces were an incredibly large, important, played a, a big role in the Allied victory. Um, the Czech uh, government, um, the Belgians, the Dutch. Um, so it was a that contributed to the liveliness, certainly in London, but they also played a very, very important role, particularly the Poles. Um, I know that because my husband and I wrote a book about Poland um, during the war, but particularly about the Polish about the Polish Air Force. Um, Polish pilots actually played a, a pivotal role in the Battle of Britain, and there are some who say if 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 uh, the RAF had had not had these Polish pilots, they probably would have lost. Um, the Battle of Britain, and that's something that most people don't know about. But to answer your question, um, I did get a contract uh, to write a book about all this. And then I realized when I really got into it that, A, it was just when the recession was hitting. Actually, I had the contract before I did Citizens of London. Um, The recession was hitting, and I would have to go to every single one of those countries to do research. And uh, it was going to take a long time, and I wouldn't have had the money and quite frankly, my advance wasn't big enough um, to cover it. Um, and I felt I just couldn't do it. And I went to my then publisher, Farrar Strauss and Juro, and said, I can't do it. Uh, would you take basically what turned out to be Citizens of London instead? And they said, no, no, we don't want that book. It's, it's, the story's been told. Everybody knows about it. And luckily for me, Random House 
um, picked it up, and it's done extraordinarily well. It's done far better probably than this other book. But at the same time, as I write a lot about those governments in exile in, in Citizens of London, so I, so I kept part of it. But there is a book out there that should be written about all this, uh, about these people. I mean, you don't realize the Norwegians, for example, uh, didn't give, but um, they sold um, about a fourth of their merchant shipping fleet to Britain, which enabled the British to survive you know, for the, the very dark times when they weren't getting very much aid from us. Um, now, I'm, I'm not saying the Norwegians were doing it out of the goodness of their hearts, but they certainly they played a huge role. The Belgian government lent the British um, much of their gold reserves uh, when the British were having trouble paying for um, um, arms shipments, etc., from us before Lend-Lease took, uh, took effect. So, you know, it, it was a really uh, important role that they played. And Maybe I'll get around to it later. I think if Hitler had put his mind to it, as his military people were urging him to, particularly his navy, particularly um, Admiral Raider, um, who kept insisting, you know, if 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 we put all of our attention, you know, on on Britain, we can break them. And I'm uh, virtually everybody who studied this agrees that that if Hitler had done that. Um, um, I mean, Britain would have gone down. Blitz was really from um, September 1940, and it lasted, it was 57 straight nights of bombing, and then, then the uh, Germans let up a bit, but then they came back several times in the spring, um, early spring um, of 1941, and, and the worst raids of the war actually were in March and April, or April and May of 1941. And then... You know, thanks to the invasion of uh, Russia, then they turned their attention, the Luftwaffe turned their attention to, to Russia. But then in um, 1944, just as the British, just right after D-Day, when the British were seeing some light at the end of the tunnel, um, that's when they started the V-1 and V-2 attacks, you know, the pilotless um, missiles, uh, bombs. Um, and, you know, tens of thousands were killed in 1944, really almost up to VE Day. It wasn't until the Allied troops located the um, 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 target, I mean, the uh, launching sites for the V-2 bombs in, I think, April of 1945 that those bombs finally came to an end. And, and um, Londoners, it, it was aimed at London. This was not aimed really at, at any other British city. Londoners hated those worse than what they had experienced in the Blitz because they had no, it was so random. They had no idea when it was coming. I mean, and, and it didn't only come at night. The, the Blitz bombings were, were at night. Uh, but this that could happen. You could be walking down the street to go to lunch and you could be hit by a, you know, a V1 or a V2 bomb. It was really awful. And, and you know, by that time they had gone through five years of war, five years of terrible privation, and they were exhausted. And then to have this happen you know, on top of everything else. It was really, really difficult. There are a number of reasons. I think one of the main reasons was he was a businessman, first and foremost. And like many businessmen, he, he was a good friend of Neville Chamberlain's. And Neville Chamberlain also came from a business background and, and looked at everything through a business filter, you know, like we should all, we can all get along and, you know, we should treat uh, our relationship with Hitler as a one businessman with another. Kennedy thought it was not good for his business or for the, for business of the United States 
Um, that's part of it. He was also, he was an Irishman, uh, and I think, quite frankly, that had a, an effect. Um, but I think it was mainly business-related. And he, he honestly didn't think the British could, could survive. And he was not the only one. I mean, there were a lot of people who didn't think the British could possibly survive. How could this little island survive, you know, a, an onslaught, you know, by the mightiest uh, military force ever created? Um, so for all those reasons, he just uh, thought the U.S. shouldn't have anything to do with uh, trying to help them. Talk a little bit about uh, Anglophobia and isolationism in America, particularly in the press at the outset of the war, and what then changes in Um That's a good question. Um, it depended, you know, it really depended on where you were in the country. Um, on the East Coast, particularly in New York, uh, New York was really the center of Anglophilia, if you will. I mean, um, so the Times, the New York Times, the Herald Tribune was not Anglophobic at all. Um, they tended to, you know, they had a lot to do with Europe, as did many of the, the people who lived in, in New York and, and elsewhere on the East Coast, had gone to school in Europe, uh, knew a lot about, the, uh, about Europe, uh, had traveled there, uh, had, had done business there. Uh, when you got to the middle of the country, uh, the Midwest, that's where most, not most, but a good chunk of, of isolationism was. The Chicago Tribune was the kind of flagship paper for American isolationism. Uh, um, I think part of it is that, you know, as Americans, we really didn't pay much attention to the rest of the world. We didn't have to worry terribly much because we had two oceans on either side of us. Our experience in World War I, uh, we had been promised that we were going to save the, make the world safe for democracy, and instead we got Hitler and Mussolini. Um, so Americans had no desire to get involved in, in this war, and then they, you know, they still many of them still thought of um, Britain in the, you know, in the era of George the Third. It was it was really true. I mean, I, I quote. Um, Actually, not so much in this book, in the book I'm working on now. Senate, Senator Burton Wheeler, who was the kind of the main isolationist uh, member of Congress. He was the leader of the isolationist forces in Congress. He, he represented Montana, but he was raised in Boston. He was from Massachusetts. And he talks in his, in his autobiography about when he was a little boy, and the, um, they would, uh, there would be um, recreations of Bunker Hill, um, you know, on the 4th of July, and he would go down and, and, and you know, and jeer the redcoats and throw stones at the, the, the guys uh, playing the redcoats. And so that, that still had a, a big uh, effect uh, on this country. And, and there are all sorts of other reasons for the Anglophobia. You know, I, I was raised loving England. I loved everything about England before I even ever went there. And I couldn't, quite frankly, I couldn't, I didn't know about this um, at all until several years ago when I started doing research on it, how, how, how deep um, the kind of dislike of Britain was and, and went back a lot of it to the, to the time of the revolution. And, of course, you had, then you had German-American populations, very large German-American populations in many cities, Irish-American populations, um, both of whom had 
reasons for uh, disliking the British. So it was it was really quite deeply entrenched. And to get to your to the second part of your question, how did that change? Um, I think there were a number of reasons for it. I uh, I think the press became much more aware of what was going on. I think Winston Churchill helped enormously in in if not changing uh, American opinions, certainly making them think that you know that it, w- it was a good thing to save Britain. I think the courage and, and resolution of the British uh, during the Blitz to sh- and showing that they were not giving up um, played a big role. And in, in doing that, I think the broadcast of Ed Murrow and other American correspondents, the writing of other American correspondents, excuse me, correspondents, had a big role in that too. I think that really uh, affected American public opinion in 1940. So there were a lot of things going on. Um, and I wouldn't say that this country was madly in love with England uh, when we finally got into the war, but they certainly, by, by December 1941, uh, there's no question that, that overwhelmingly the American people wanted to save that country and, um, and, and were willing to get into the war to do it. You referred to your next book. Yes. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, it's not the government's in exile. It's it's kind of the um, companion book to this. It's the fight in this. That's why I know so much about it. It's the fight in this country over whether to get into the war and to help England. And it turns out to be, I mean, I knew a bit about that. Obviously, everybody does who studies history. But I didn't realize what a really nasty, bitter fight it was. It, it truly was one of the, not surprisingly, because we were, we were dealing with big issues, you know, one of the biggest issues of all, what, what kind of country are we? You know, are we going to be uh, isolationist, uh, you know, inward-looking, or are we going to be outward-looking? And um, that, uh, that was one of the questions. And so uh, it's, it's a really interesting, really interesting story. Yes, sir. Um, England has a slightly, just very slightly better record than we do, but not much. Neither country distinguished itself, to put it mildly, in terms of, of helping Jews. Um, um, the, no, I mean, you know, um, the, the British took in more children. Um, I don't know, some of you may have heard of this, the kinder transport, uh, uh, particularly young Czech children, Jewish children, uh, and, and children from other countries um, that were brought to Britain. But it was just, it was a very small number, you know, in comparison to the, the number of Jews who, uh, who were killed in the Holocaust. But, but neither country covered itself with glory. And, and what, what is bothersome is they, they both, both Britain and um, the U.S., both Roosevelt and Churchill, had been told about what was going on. Um, in, in Germany and, and elsewhere, in Poland particularly, and uh, in the uh, killing, in the death camps. And, uh, you know, they, they focused on winning the war. They kept saying winning the war was the most important thing and, uh, for everything. For, you know, uh, we have to win the war, and then we will deal with these other problems. But by the time we had won the war, it was too late. Yes, ma'am. 
Gil Wine. There, there was one biography that was published in the early 60s um, by an academic uh, called He Walked Alone, and, and that is it. That is really all that's ever been written about him. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of try to figure out why. I think a large part of it was that he killed himself um, two years after the war. And um, he, he had always... He, he disappeared from public view. And even, you know, even when he was in England, um, he wasn't very well known in this country. Um, you know, he, he, he was a very kind of quiet man. He, he played behind this. He worked behind the scenes, unlike Avril Harriman, who did everything he possibly could to make himself known. Um, Gil Wynette wasn't like that. Although he was a very ambitious guy. I mean, um, but he, he, he was a very shy um, kind of... Um, not reclusive, but he uh, he stepped back, and so you know not much w- really was written about him in this country, and um, and his suicide was considered so shameful, um, actually by um, a lot of people, particularly in his home state, in New Hampshire. Um, I went up there; they have re- rediscovered Gilmanet in the really since my book came out, and. Uh, but most most people in New Hampshire didn't even know who he was, and he was the Secretary of State of New Hampshire. Told me that he thought he was the best governor that state has ever had, but virtually nobody knows who he was. Oh, he was a fantastic governor. He actually, you know, at the time he he was um, governor of New Hampshire. At the same time, FDR was governor of New York, and in many ways he was even more liberal. If you can imagine the. Uh, 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 well, I shouldn't say Republican, but um, he was even more liberal than FDR was in many ways. Uh, the two of them were very much kindred spirits in what they wanted for the people. And uh, Gil Wynant uh, managed to accomplish stuff that, uh, that FDR didn't get accomplished. Um, so he, he was a fascinating guy. I, I didn't go into uh, many of his personal traits, but one of them is that he couldn't give a speech for the life of him. He was so incredibly shy that he would stand up and it would sometimes it would take him minutes before he could start talking, um, and you know people. Uh, I ran. Ac- I came across a number of uh, quotes from people who would be sitting there just agonizing, waiting for him to just to start talking. Um, and uh, you know, but finally, when he started talking, he even though he was never a really good speaker, his the passion, his passion, and his feeling and his warmth came through. Um, and I quote, uh, the New York Times uh, wrote, I think it was in the late 1930s, um, that people sit in, in Gil Winant's audiences feeling sorry for him, and then they end up by giving him a standing ovation. And that's just the kind of guy he was. And it's really hard to imagine. I mean, I tried very hard to imagine what being in an audience like that and, and trying to figure out what he was like. And it was very hard. Really, really hard. I think you had to be around him because he had this incredible ability from all accounts to make you feel like you were the most important person on earth when he was with you. And, I mean, I've known a couple, you know, some people who kind of laser in. But, but he had this extraordinary ability to um, just totally um, I didn't make people think he was the best person on earth. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. And, uh, um, you know, he was just really quite a, an amazing guy. And uh, it's too bad that we don't know more about him. Are there any recordings of this? Uh, you know, there is. Um, um, 
I went on the internet uh, when I first started doing uh, research on him, and I, in 1946, um, the, the uh, Congress had a joint session honoring Franklin Roosevelt. It was, it was about a year after he died. I don't know why they hadn't done that, maybe because of the war. But anyway, and the, the only speaker at this joint session was John Gilbert Winant. Um, so you had the whole Congress, the President, the Supreme Court, everybody was there. And I found on the internet a recording of his voice, um, of that speech. And he actually has, he had a wonderful voice. But then when I, I went back to try to find that, that, that link, I couldn't find it. And I, I looked everywhere for it, but I did hear it one time. And he had a very strong voice, and it was, and it, there was none of that hesitancy um, that, you know, again, this is 1946, so he had had a number of years to give us speeches, which he did. Um, but it, he had a very strong, and it was a very moving speech. And it, but there's very, by the way, there's very little newsreel uh, stuff available now. I um, found, again, there's a wonderful um, Pathé. Pathé is a French newsreel company, and it was for the British theaters, and it was when George VI of the King's Speech fame, uh, met Wynant when he first came to England. And he did something that no king, no monarch has ever done, which is to go out and meet a new ambassador rather than the ambassador is supposed to come to Buckingham Palace and be presented to the king or queen. Um, but be, to show how important Gil Wynant was, and this was in March 1941, he went to Windsor and greeted um, Wynant at the train station. And uh, there is... Uh, newsreel film of that, which is which is really wonderful um, to see. Anything else? Actually, that's interesting. You ask. I'm. Uh, I was beginning to give up hope. <laughs> Actually, there there's been some interest, um, but nothing uh, substantial until um, a Broadway producer of all people. Uh, contacted me, and he's a big deal Broadway producer. He produced um, um, Death of a Salesman, the, the one that was on Broadway a few years ago and won 20 million Tonys with Brian Dennehy, etc. So he's produced a lot of big productions, and he's never done uh, television or, or movies before. He did one movie, he produced one movie, but he says he, he really, and, he, and he's really got great connections. He wants to do it as a, as a miniseries, so... We'll see what happens, but we just signed the contract this week, so let's see how. See. I have no money yet, and, and knowing the knowing how these things work, I probably won't. But uh, yeah, it's it's hopeful anyway. Okay. Thank you. So oh well, thank you very much. This is great fun. Thank you.